Welcome to the Christchurch Manchester Theology Podcast. The CCM School of Theology meets monthly on Saturday mornings at Luther King House in Manchester. For more information about the training that we offer or about our church in Manchester, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. Saturday 16th of November, Andy Brownlee taught two sessions on church history at the Christchurch Manchester School of Theology. This is the first of those sessions where Andy looks at the early church period of church history from the year 29 to 590 AD. Andy is one of the leaders at Christchurch Manchester and also runs Christchurch Manchester's School of Theology. Let's take a listen to the session. So welcome to School of Theology again. Uh, it's the, the second last School of Theology of our year. Uh, so we're going to have our final one is going to be on uh, Saturday 14th of December. Saturday 14th of December where we're going to be looking at Revelation and Eschatology. So this morning uh, this morning's going to be a little bit different to our normal School of Theology sessions. Because uh, what's different about this morning, firstly, is that I am going to be doing the teaching this morning. Whether that's a good thing or not, I don't know. You can decide by the end. But I'm doing the teaching this morning. And also, instead of having two separate sessions on two different things, we're going to use both our sessions this morning to cover church history. We're going to use both our sessions this morning to cover church history. And the, the idea being that we've spent two years basically covering the whole Bible. Now we're going to go to where the Bible kind of ends. You know, kind of uh, Jesus going back to heaven. And we're going to take it from there up to the present day. And then in our next session in December, we're going to look at the future revelation and eschatology. Okay, so this morning we're going to cover church history. So pretty much between now and half past 12, I'm going to share with you the story of the church from Jesus to the present day. Okay, so that's 2,000 years of church history in three hours. Okay, now I don't know, I'm, maybe I'm crazy for even to attempt this. I think it was Paul Graves earlier, he, he said to me, he said, um, Andy, that's pretty much, you're pretty much covering 10 years every minute this morning. 10 years every minute. So, um, I mean, it, it's not a surprise to say to any of you that it's going to be an overview. I'm going to skip some things. I'm going to miss some things out. So please, whatever you say after this morning, don't come to me and say, Andy, you missed this out, okay? Because I'm going to miss loads of stuff out. But hopefully what I'm going to try and do is give you a bit of an overview of the main kind of things that happen in church history, how they fit together and how they've kind of formed where we are um, up to this point uh, right now. So pretty much by our first coffee break, we'll hopefully be in about the year 300. By our second coffee break, we're going to get to about 1,500, and then by half 12, we'll have got to the present day. That's my hope. If none of you ask too many questions, that's hopefully where we'll get to. Um, I'm just going to pray as we start, and then I'm just going to start with a little activity, a little game uh, before we begin. So let me just, let's all just pray. Father, uh, thank you that we can, we can meet here together. We can come, we can study uh, the story of, of your church, Lord, from its beginning way back in Jerusalem to the present day and all the things that have happened in it, good and bad, Lord, and uh, how you've worked in it, how you've used people, Lord. And Father, I pray that you will bless our time here this morning. Help me to speak. Uh, help us all to listen. And, and Lord, I pray that this morning wouldn't just be us learning some stuff, but it would inspire us, it would encourage us, and it would help us 
in our, in our faith and our walks as, as Christians. So uh, bless this morning, we pray, Lord. And Lord, I pray we'll have fun as well. Amen. 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 So what I want to do is I want to start, you've got handouts on your tables. They say church history in big letters. What I want you to do is take your handouts, turn them upside down so the church history bit faces the table. And on each of your tables, um, if you're not on a table, there may be some other ones knocking around, I'm not sure. But on each of your tables, you should have a little, nine little sheets with a paper clip. Yeah, so you should have those. What I want you to do on your tables now, just take a minute or two is take those, those nine things have nine key events from church history. And I just want you on your tables, in your groups, to put them in order. Put them in order. Take a minute, have a go at doing that. Okay, everyone, let's, let's bring it back in. What, what I'm going to do is I'm, I'm not actually going to give you the answers right now. I'm, uh, I know, I know, unpopular choice. I'm gonna, we're going to come back to that in a bit, and I'll give you the answers in a bit. What I want you to do is, if you can, wherever you've placed your kind of, placed them in a row, just leave them there for a bit. So if, you, if you've got them on your table, leave them on your table. If you put them on the floor, just leave them there somewhere. And we will, we will come back to those later uh, this morning. Um, but I just want to start, I just want to start this morning uh, by addressing the whole, the whole question of why bother studying church history? I mean, why don't we just study more of the Bible this morning? Why, why should we study church history? And I, I think there's a few reasons why we should study church history. Now, just to say, um, uh, I love history. I studied history at uni. Um, I did a master's in church history. So one of the reasons you're studying church history today is because I just want to do it. Um, so you're just victims of me wanting to do it. That's the first reason. But, but, but first, first kind of main reason, really, why we, why we should study church history is because it reminds us that it's not all about us. It's not all about us. You know, when you study church history, you begin to realize that millions and millions of Christians um, have lived and died for Jesus long before you were even born, which reminds me, personally anyway, for, of just how small a cog in God's big plan to redeem the world that I really am. And I think that's a good thing for us all to know that. It just gives us perspective. Another reason for studying church history is because it shows us what sacrifice looks like. Now, the reality is most of us don't have to sacrifice tons to be a Christian today in our society. But we're going to learn about people today who have sacrificed a lot for Jesus. And I don't know about you, but that's, that's, I find those kind of stories really kind of inspiring uh, to me. Now, studying church history also helps us not repeat mistakes from the past, okay? Now, if, say for example, you know, John decides to come up here and say, look, Andy, I've got a great idea what you guys can do with, ch- with church next, next, next year. Instead of, you know, your give big offering that you're going to give to the poor, um, if you just use that money, here's my idea, if you use that money to raise an army and send them to Jerusalem to fight loads of people who aren't Christians, why don't we do that? Like, that would be a great idea for what we could do with church. And you know, I've actually thought of a name for this thing. Why don't we call it a crusade? You know, wouldn't that be a fantastic idea? Now, church history enables you to say to John, John, you know, uh, I've learned from church history today that um, a long time ago, some people actually tried what you've suggested, something similar to that, and it really didn't go very well at all. So that's maybe not a good idea. Okay? That's one thing that church history helps us to do, is helps us to not repeat mistakes from the past. 
But church history also, and this is one of the things I love about church history, church history also shows us that God uses ordinary, flawed, broken people to bring about his plan, okay? None of the big names in church history were perfect. Like, Martin Luther was a bit rude at times, and he was anti-Semitic, you know, so he wasn't perfect. I mean, John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, we all think, oh, he was so great. He wasn't a very good husband. He wasn't a very nice guy to be married to, you know? So these guys, these weren't, they weren't perfect. No one's perfect in this story, but God still uses broken, flawed people to bring about his plan. And I think that's encouraging for us all. And um, studying church history also reminds us of the importance of the gospel. Now, many times throughout history, the, the church had lost sight of the gospel and, and focused on other things. And as a result, it lost its way. And then someone called it back to focus on the gospel and the church was, was renewed. And I, and I think that's a great reminder for us all in our individual lives to keep our eyes focused on Jesus and focused on the gospel. But the thing uh, I think I love most about studying church history is that it shows us that no matter how crazy stuff gets in the world, God is still in control. He has a plan for his church and he is working it out even when it's hard for us to see. Okay, that's one of the things I love most about studying church history. So this morning, we're going to learn about lots of interesting people. Some of them did good things, some of them not so good. And maybe one day when you get to heaven, you'll meet some of the people you learn about today and you can walk up to them in heaven and you can say, listen, I, I learned about what you did in church history um, on the 16th, 17th of November, 2019. I just want to say, mate, well done for what you did. All right, you'll be able to have some of those conversations in heaven. Depending on who the person is, you might, you know, meet them in heaven and say, I learned about you in church history. And let me tell you, I'll be honest with you, I did not expect to see you here, okay? Because of what you did, I was not expecting to see you in heaven, okay? You might have some conversations like that. But my hope is this morning is that we will be inspired by church history. Um, my hope is that it won't be boring. Most people oftentimes when they hear the word history just think, oh gosh, dates and stuff. Um, but church history ultimately... It's, it's not just some story about other people. It's our story because we are part of the church. This is our story, warts and all. So I'm hoping we're going to have some fun today. I know. Let's have some fun. That's what I'm hoping. So let's get started. Now, one of the things you probably think of when you hear the word history is dates. Dates and dates and dates. For a lot of us, it's probably one of the reasons why you hated studying history at school because you had to remember all these dates and you got them wrong and it was just hard, okay? Now, there are going to be a lot of dates today, okay, but um, I'm just going to start with an easy one this morning, okay? This is not a trick question, by the way. What date is it today? 16th of November 2019, okay, yeah, 2019, so 2019, 2019 years from what? Again, not a trick question. 2019 years from what? Since the hypothetical date of the birth of Jesus. There's a big word in there. I'm not quite sure what it means. But yeah, we'll go, we'll go from, from, the, from the birth of Jesus. Yeah. So, um, so the dating system that we use and is used across the world today is centered on the birth of Jesus. Now, the world hasn't always used this dating system. It was invented by a, a Russian monk called Dionysius in the early 500s. And he basically uh, worked out with the kind of information at his disposal at the time when Christ was born, and he called that year one, or 
1 AD. Now, AD simply stands for Anno Domini. It's Latin for Anno Domini, and just, that just means in the year of our Lord, which pretty much just means the year our Lord was born, okay? So 1 AD is year our Lord was born. That's what he's saying. So everything that happened after Jesus' birth, Dionysius dated according to how long it happened after Jesus' birth and had AD put after it. So something that happened 100 years after Jesus' birth would be called, would be, would be dated as 100 AD. Simple? Yeah, something that happened 500 years after Jesus' birth would be dated 500 AD. I know this is simple for a lot of us, but it's just important for us to clarify. Likewise, everything that happened before Jesus' birth, Dionysius dated according to how long it happened before Jesus' birth and had the letters BC put after it. BC simply stands for before Christ. Very simple. So something that happened 100 years before Jesus' birth would be, defined, would be dated as 100 BC. Something that happened 500 years before Jesus' birth, 500 BC. Very simple. I, I hope. Yes? Kind of. We got it. So Dionysius made the birth of Christ the date by which all other dates in the world would be measured against. Now, it took a while, but eventually everyone adopted Dionysius' dating, dating system. It was adopted by England in the 600s. It was adopted by the Pope in the 900s, by Spain in the 1300s, and by Greece in the 1400s. I realize the irony of dating when these areas, like, accepted the dating system by using the dating system that they accepted. Okay, just forget about that bit. Okay, that's complicated, but anyway. Have we got all that? Yeah. Clear as mud. Right. Now, here's where it gets a bit complicated, and here's uh, where the hypothetical word comes in. Right. So Dionysius probably got his date for Christ's birth wrong. Okay? <laughs> you just got all that. You just be like, oh, great. He probably got it wrong. Historians reckon that Christ was actually probably born four years earlier than Dionysius thought, which means you have this odd thing where historians have to say Jesus was born in 4 BC, you know, four years before the birth of Christ, which is kind of weird. Now, that doesn't mean Jesus was four years early for his birth, but simply that he was born four years before Dionysius thought he was born. Now, Dionysius was operating in the, you know, in the 500s, so, you know, he, did, he couldn't just Google this, you know, and he, he did a pretty good job with the information that he had at his disposable. So he, so he wasn't far off. So, a little bit of maths for us all here. Ready for that? Someone is. Yes, maths. It's not difficult maths, um, or else I wouldn't, be, I wouldn't be doing it. So, if Jesus was born in 4 BC and he died at the age of 33, we would say that Jesus died when? 29 AD, okay? And that's where we pick up the story today. And I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take you this morning from 29 AD right up to the present day. Now, I've divided our morning into four sections. You'll have those four sections. They're the ones that are in a box in your notes. Into four sections. <coughs> the first section is the early church from the years 29 to 590 AD. The second section is the Middle Ages from 590 to 1517. The third section is 1517 to 1648, the Reformation. And the fourth section is the Modern Church, 1648 to the present day. So we're just going to work through these four sections. Then we're going to finish. And then we'll be done for the day. Hands up who's excited. Hands up who's not. No, we'll not do that one. Okay. I just want to know who's excited. Yeah, if you're not, you could just, yeah. So first section, the early church. 29 AD to 590 AD. <coughs> and in this period, basically, the gospel goes viral. 
it just goes right across the Roman Empire. And also what we see is the defense of the truth. So a lot of Christians have to defend what they believe against other people who are coming in and saying, oh, you should believe this instead, or this, or this, or this. So those are the two main things happen in this period. Now, this first section is kind of the longest section we'll cover this morning. So I've divided it into kind of three subsections based on dates. The first of these subsections is the years 29 to 70 AD. 29 to 70 AD, that's in your notes, you can see it there. And we're basically just going to focus on what happened in three cities and look a little bit at the Apostle Paul as well. Okay, so let's get started by just talking about the church in Jerusalem. A lot of this you can read in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2, some weeks after Jesus ascends back to heaven. You've got the Pentecost festival in Jerusalem, the 120 disciples there at home, uh, in a home, the Holy Spirit falls, people hear the gospel in their own language, um, and 3,000 people are saved. Okay, now these 3,000 people who were saved, these were Jews who had traveled from loads of cities away from Jerusalem and had come for the festival, heard the gospel, got saved. Okay, so these are are Jews. Now, (coughs) the church began to grow. In this period, we read in the Bible that it grew steadily. People were added day by day. But it's just worth pointing that at this point, all Christians at this point were Jews. They were from a Jewish background. Okay, so they were born Jewish ancestrally. Then they believed in Jesus. They became Christians. Now, what happened in Jerusalem at this time was tensions began to rise between um, the non-Christian Jews, so the Jews who didn't believe Jesus was the Messiah, and the Christian Jews, the Jews who had you know, become Christians, accepted Jesus, like, yep, we're saved. And this tension eventually led to Stephen um, being killed. And we reckon around 36 AD, so we're talking about seven or eight years after, after Jesus ascended back to heaven. And um, he was killed by the, the non-Christian Jews. Who, you, you can read about that in Acts chapter 7. <clears throat> he was the first Christian to be killed for his faith. Five years later, James the disciple... Okay, the brother of John is killed too. Okay, first disciple we know who's killed. And then things start getting pretty dangerous for the Christians in Jerusalem. And as a result, many of them leave uh, Jerusalem at this time. Among them, John the disciple and Peter the disciple both leave Jerusalem at this time. Peter goes to a city called Antioch and then on to Corinth in Greece and eventually on to other cities in Turkey. And eventually Peter ends up in Rome. After Peter fled Jerusalem, James, um, the brother of Jesus, um, becomes the leader of the church in Jerusalem. But in 62 AD, so we're talking, what's that, 33 years after Jesus has gone back to heaven? In 62 AD, he was killed for his faith. And for a while, the church in Jerusalem was left leaderless. Now, everything in Jerusalem changed, though, in the year 64 Okay, 64. So someone do the math. How, how many years is that after Jesus? That Jesus come back then? 35, yeah. 35 years after Jesus. Everything changed in 64 AD. Because what happened in 64 AD was <coughs> that the temple in Jerusalem was completed. They'd been working on this. Thousands of laborers had been working on this for many, many, many years. And in 64 AD, it's like, it's completed. We're like, hooray, fantastic. But what it meant was... When it was completed, it meant that thousands of laborers, manual laborers, were immediately put out of work overnight because their jobs were gone. Now, if you know anything about history, 
Mass employment, unemployment, often leads to civil unrest. And that's exactly what happened. Two years later, the Jews revolt against the Romans. This big revolt against the Romans. They managed to hold out against the Romans for four years. But at that time, the Roman army was the finest army in the world. And in 70 AD, the Romans finally put down the uprising. And in so doing, they completely destroy Jerusalem. New temple, everything, completely destroy it. And what they also do is they burn every synagogue in Israel to the ground. Okay? This is an example. You're going you're gonna to rise up against the Romans. We're going to teach you what's going to happen when you do that. So that's what happened. So as a result of the destruction of Jerusalem, Christians scattered everywhere, taking the gospel message with them. So evangelistically, it was actually kind of a good thing. And many of them settled in a city 300 miles north of Jerusalem called Antioch. Now, I think we have a map here. Yes, we do. So you've got Jerusalem here. And then up north, 300 miles north, you've got Antioch. And then way over to the left, you've got Rome. These are the three key cities we're going to look at just in this little, in this little period. Now, <coughs> so Antioch is the next little section in your notes. Now, Antioch was a much bigger city than Jerusalem. 500,000 people lived in Antioch at that time. It was the third biggest city in the Roman Empire after Rome. Rome was the biggest over on the left of the map. Alexandria was the second biggest and Antioch was the third biggest city in the Roman Empire at that time. Now, after the destruction of Jerusalem, Antioch became the new center of Christianity, the hub city, the main missionary sending city. Now, Antioch is also where Jesus' followers were first given the name Christians. Now, at first, it was kind of a derogatory name. People would be like, oh, those Christians. But soon the believers adopted it as their own. And in Antioch, a hugely significant thing happened for the first time too. The Jewish Christians began sharing the gospel with Gentiles, non-Jews. Okay, this was huge. This hadn't happened before. Up to this point, the gospel was only preached from Jews to Jews. But now they were preaching it to non-Jews. Hugely significant thing. And in the year 44... So that's what, 15 years after Jesus, a guy arrived in Antioch who would take preaching to the Gentiles to the absolute next level. And this guy's name was Paul. Yes, you're with me. Yeah, good. This was Paul. Now, Paul was, is incredibly important to Christianity and was an incredibly good evangelist because Paul was a man of three different cultures which allowed him to reach into three different cultures. So Paul was Jewish. Not only was he Jewish, but he was educated by the famous Jewish rabbi Gamaliel. So he knew the Old Testament like the back of his hand. Okay, he was absolutely up there in terms of education, Jewish education. But also, Paul spoke Greek fluently. Now, Greek was the world language of the day, a bit like English is today. He spoke it fluently, and also he was completely familiar with Greek thought, literature, and philosophy. Okay, which was the common kind of way of thinking at the time. But also, more than that, Paul was a Roman citizen, which gave him freedom of, complete freedom of movement in the empire and protection on his travels and access to higher levels of society. So, so basically, he was the perfect guy to spread the gospel to the Gentile world. God knew what he was doing when he saved Paul. Okay, he really did. Now, Paul then spends the next 10 years preaching the gospel and planting churches, which you read about in the New Testament, right across the Roman Empire. And in 50 AD, he plants the first church in Europe. Um, it's in Philippi. But by 57 AD, he gets arrested, he's sent to Rome, and he's eventually executed in Emperor Nero's severe persecution of Christians in Rome in the year 64 AD. <coughs> 
Basically, so we'll just turn to look at Rome very briefly. Basically, what happened in 64 AD, okay, so this was kind of the time when, yeah, the, the temple in Jerusalem was being completed. In 64 AD, a fire burned most of Rome to the ground, all right? This is the biggest city in the world, the capital of the empire. Nero, who was the emperor, he needed a scapegoat. So what he did was he blamed the Christians for starting it, right? It, it wasn't true, but he just thought, well, I've got to blame someone. So he blamed the Christians. And as a result, for a couple of years, there was severe persecution of Christians. Many Christians were crucified. Um, some Christians were actually, they, they were sewn in the skins of wild beasts. And then um, large dogs basically tore them to pieces. Um, women were tied to mad bulls and dragged to death. And uh, after dark, many Christians were actually burned alive as evening lamps in Nero's garden. At this time, we believe that Peter and Paul were both um, executed. They were both killed for their faith. Peter was crucified, but he asked not to be crucified in the same way that Jesus was crucified. So they crucified him upside down. That's how we reckon he was killed. Paul, who was a Roman citizen, Roman citizens were forbidden from being crucified. Okay? It was too, they deemed it a too cruel form of way of dying for Roman citizens. So Paul probably was beheaded. So Peter and Paul, we reckon, both died in that persecution in 64 AD in Rome. Now, this was the first systematic persecution of Christians in the Roman Empire in 64 AD. Okay, there will, be four, there will be four of them in the first 300 years. This is the first of them. Okay, so, bit of a summary. Are we all still with me? We good? Okay, I know that's a lot, a lot of information. By the way, I, I don't put loads of detail in my handouts, so you have to write loads of stuff, so sorry about that. Um, yeah, so... I see lots of you writing notes. Um, so basically, we're up to 70 AD. Jerusalem is destroyed. Peter and Paul are both dead. But what we've seen is the gospel has spread to the major cities of the empire, to Jerusalem, onto Antioch, to Philippi, to all the major cities that Paul planted churches in, Ephesus, Corinth. And also, it's arrived in Rome as well. And it's not only Jews who are becoming Christians now, it's Gentiles too. What we're going to see in the next 250 years, though, <laughs> um, in the next 250 years from 70 AD to 312, is that the gospel spreads um, not just to the major cities, but right across the Roman Empire. It goes viral, completely viral, despite increasing persecution. Now, we've got another map here, which this is a map of the Roman Empire. So the green and the pink bits are all the, this is the Roman Empire. Forget about what the, it says in them, but this is the extent of the Roman Empire. So you can see the Roman Empire goes right up to Hadrian's Wall, right up to Hadrian's Wall in England. So England was in the Roman Empire. It goes right over. You've got Israel. You've got North Egypt here, North Africa. So the pink and the green bits are all the Roman <coughs> Empire at that time. Now, up to about 70 AD, the gospel had kind of got to most of the pink bits. Okay, um, But what we're going to see is that it's going to, which actually, if you think about it, from when Jesus died and went back to heaven, 29, we're now at 70. That's 40 years. So that's pretty good going if you think about it. You know, churches have been planted in Rome. That's a long way from, from Jerusalem. But what we're going to see is that in the next 250 years is the gospel just goes completely across that whole green and pink area. Churches planted everywhere. People getting saved everywhere. Completely goes to the whole Roman Empire. So let's have a look at that. 70 AD to 312, the gospel explodes in growth despite persecution. Okay, so during this period, the gospel spreads to France, 
There's a record of a church there in 150 AD. Britain, Spain, North Africa, and even as far as India. And pretty much by the year 300, there is no area of the Roman Empire untouched by the gospel. It's got to the whole outer edges of the Roman Empire. Okay? So people were getting saved and churches were being planted at an astonishing rate over this period. All right? So, question. Why did Christianity spread so rapidly during this period? Why did it spread so rapidly during this period? Well, there's four reasons, pretty much, we have that it spread so rapidly in this period. It's not in your notes, so it's just, you know, there's something that says reasons Christianity spread. The, the four reasons aren't in it, so if you want to write them down, you can. First reason Christianity spread so rapidly is people just had this intense burning conviction to share the gospel. They would get saved and they'd just tell all their friends and then they'd get saved and then they'd tell all their friends. It's just the way it went. The second reason is because there was this large group of people in the Roman Empire at that time called God-fearers. And these people were just ripe to become Christians. Now, God-fearers were, they were people who weren't Jewish, but they really liked the Jewish religion. So what they did was they would kind of attach themselves to a synagogue. They would be there. They'd hang out with people. So they were kind of like, they were kind of wanting to be Jewish, but they couldn't because they weren't born Jews. Okay? These were, and, and they were given this name, God-fearers. So pretty much when Christianity comes along, Paul and all the guys can say to these God-fearers, look, you can basically have everything of Judaism and more by just believing in Jesus. And they were like, awesome. You mean we don't even have to get circumcised? Paul's like, yes, you can have it all and you don't even have to get circumcised. So they're like, yes, fantastic. So the God-fearers, which was a large proportion of the population this time, was this group who were just ready, waiting to become Christians. And Christianity spread rapidly among this group in, in those early years. That's just, so the first reason is people's conviction to share the gospel. The second reason is the God-fearers. The third reason was Christian love. So Christians looked after the poor and the sick and the dying in those times. Okay? And that wasn't a normal practice to do. A lot of people just didn't do that. And uh, non-Christians, apparently at that time, they would look at Christians and they would say this phrase. They would say, see how these Christians love one another? Like, they just look, they look after each other, they care for each other, they love each other. They're... And not only that, they don't just look after their own poor, but they look after pagan poor people as well. So people were just blown away by the love Christians had for people. And that was really compelling. And that's the third reason why Christianity spread rapidly. And the fourth reason why Christianity spread rapidly was persecution. Many people were converted to Christianity after watching the courage of Christian martyrs. You know, you'd have this, this person would come, they'd be brought before a big amphitheater, they'd say, repent, or, or, or you know, say you're not a Christian anymore, or we're going to kill you. And they'd say, I'm not denying Jesus. And they'd kill that person. And that, the courage that they showed in that would lead to many people in the crowd getting saved and becoming Christians. So those are the four reasons why Christianity spread so rapidly. Conviction to share the gospel, God fears, Christian love, and persecution. Now, next question. Why were Christians persecuted so much during this time? First 300 years of, of church history, there was a lot of persecution of Christians. Why were they persecuted so much time? Well, three reasons. First one is distinctive lifestyle. Second one is rumors. And third one is the refusal to worship the emperor's God. Okay, I'm going to go through these. So the first reason Christians were persecuted was their distinctive lifestyle. Now, back then, for a pagan, every meal began with a liquid offering and prayer to the pagan gods. Okay, so by pagan, I'm just meaning mean people who aren't Christians, just normal society. Now, Christians obviously became Christians. They're like, well, I'm not going to participate in that. Now, when every meal is like that and Christians aren't participating in that, they're kind of oddballs. They're out of it. 
Also, most parties back then were in the precincts of a temple dedicated to some gods. And Christians are like, well, I'm not going to be part of that. Also, Christians refused to go to gladiatorial events because they said they were inhumane. Also, making a, making a living when you were a Christian became increasingly hard. Because like, if you were a mason, a stonemason, all the work was in building um, temples to foreign gods. If you were a tailor, uh, all the work was in making robes for like, the priestesses for all these gods. And obviously they were saying, well, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. Also, Christians at this time decided to do something that was really uncommon at that time. They decided to refuse to kill unwanted babies. So back then it was practice. If you didn't want a baby, you just chucked them out and just left them to die. That was common practice. Christians were like, no, we're not going to do that. And they even start to rescue other people's babies who are thrown out. They also, Christians also treated slaves well. They promoted chastity in marriage, so not just sleeping around with everyone. And they valued family life. All these things were the complete opposite of where society was back then. And all these things made Christians just social outcasts. Everyone was like, these Christians, they're just weird. They're just so weird. They don't do normal stuff. So that's the first thing that made them persecuted was distinctive lifestyle. The second thing that, that brought them persecution was rumors. Now, a number of rumors swirled around Christians at this time, okay? The first one was, because at that time, Christians had this thing called a holy kiss. So when you, you would greet someone, you'd kind of do it, a bit like a French kiss, you know, kiss like that on the side. It was this kind of nice way of greeting someone. But the rumor spread, these Christians have got this holy kiss. Uh, and basically, it went from this to this to this to Christians have sexual orgies all the time. They just, the rumor spread. And like, there was no evidence for it. It had gone from holy kiss to orgies. That's what Christians do. When they meet, they have orgies. That's what they do. So that's what everyone thought. Oh, these Christians, they're terrible. Also, another rumor that spread was um, they'd heard about this thing called the Lord's Supper, where like you eat you know, the body and blood of this guy. So they're like, Christians are cannibals. Okay, they have orgies and they're cannibals. So these people are absolutely awful, right? Then they also found out that Christians, they couldn't get their heads around this fact that Christians worshipped a god, but they didn't have like a statue or an image. So they were like, so what do you mean? You worship a god, but you don't have a statue to bow down and an image? Uh, and um, so basically what they, 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 they came to this conclusion that because Christians didn't have a statue or an image of their god to bow down to, that they were atheists. So the rumor spread that Christians had orgies, were cannibals, and they were atheists, which back in those times, an atheist was pretty much the same as being insane. So that's the rumors that spread around. So you can see how people were like, Christians are weird. Okay, we really don't like Christians. Now, what also happened at this time was that um, whenever something went wrong, people just blamed the Christians. And the reason is because, say, for example, the river in your city flooded. People will be like, you know what? You know where the river flooded? The Christians didn't do any offerings to the river gods like we all did. That's why the river's flooded. It's the Christians' fault. You know, when there was an earthquake, oh, you know why there's an earthquake? The Christians didn't, didn't do offerings to the, the God of the earth, you know, and that's why there's an earthquake. It's the Christians' fault. So basically, for a period, anything that went wrong in society, people blamed Christians because they had been refusing to offer offerings to the whatever God of the whatever place. So for these reasons, these rumors all spread around and Christians got persecuted. And the third reason Christians were persecuted this time was their refusal to worship the emperor as God. So this kind of developed over time in the Roman Empire, that you had to worship the emperor as God. Now, when the Romans uh, at that time, when they conquered a people group, um, they generally, generally allowed that people group to <coughs> continue practicing their religion if they offered homage to Caesar. So basically what they had to do was come once a year, you know, put some spices in, say, Caesar, you're great. And, um, and basically the Romans were happy with that. 
If you do that, you can just do your religion the rest of the year. That's absolutely fine. That was their norm. Now, the Romans made an exception for the Jews, though, because they knew the Jews would have a real problem with doing that. So they had this one exception. The Jews didn't have to do that. They just let them practice their religion on their own. Okay, so they didn't have to pay homage to, Jesus, to, to, to Caesar. Now, as long as the Romans saw the Christians as just some other sect of Judaism, the, the, the Christians were kind of protected from pressure for the Romans. The Romans are like, oh, yeah, they're just kind of Jews. They don't have to do it. But when the Jews started to make it clear to the Romans that Christianity was actually not a part of Judaism, the situation changed pretty dramatically. Okay, got pretty bad pretty quick. You see, the thing about Judaism, the Jews, is they're a pretty closed group. Like, they don't really do evangelism. You're born a Jew, that's you, okay? So they were kind of set apart. So they didn't try and convert people. Christians, on the other hand, were always talking about Jesus, trying to convert others, trying to share the message. So not only did they refuse to worship the emperor as God, but they were trying to convince everybody else to do the same. And that's one of the, that's the third reason why they started to get persecuted at this time. <coughs> now, it may surprise you, but severe persecution against Christians from the Roman Empire in the kind of first 300 years, um, it wasn't actually that common during this period. Okay, there's only four times in the first 300 years when emperors decided to really persecute Christians. Only four times. And it was only for maybe one or a couple of years for each time. <coughs> so for long periods, Christians were generally left in peace by the Roman emperors. They were discriminated against, yes, by the general population, but systematic killing by the state wasn't as common as you might think. Still, it was certainly not easy being a Christian at this time. But despite this, Christianity continued to grow rapidly <coughs> across the Roman Empire. Now, I've just got a little um, chart here. It's, it should be in your notes. It's not up here. It's in your notes. This is... Um, it just shows the growth rate of Christianity in the first 350 years. Now, it's by a guy called Rodney Stark, a bit of a genius of a historian. He's written a couple of great books, Rise of Christianity and Triumph of Christianity. And he reckons that the, through loads of kind of statistical analysis and all this, that the Christian growth rate in the first 350 years was 40%. And um, if you look at the years there, he reckons that in the first hundred years of Christianity, there were only Christians were numbered in the thousands, really. But by 150, there were 40,000 Christians in the Roman Empire. By 200, there were 217,000 Christians. That's 0.36%. By 250 AD, there was 1.1 million Christians in the Roman Empire. 1.9% of the population. By 300 AD, that had risen to 6 million Christians in the Roman Empire. So the Roman Empire at this time was about 60 million people. Okay, so 6 million, that's about 10% of the population were Christians by 300. By 350 AD, he reckons that 33 million people in the Roman Empire had now become Christians, had now given their lives to Christ. That's 56% of the Roman Empire. Can you imagine Europe, 56% of Europe being born again evangelical Christians? Like, oh my goodness, how this continent would look different. But that's what happened in Europe in, by the time we get to the 300s. Okay, now where are we? 15 minutes till break time. Right, what have we got? We've got Bible. Well, we have a look at the Bible, how the Bible was put together, real quick. Are we, all, are we all doing okay? This is, I, I realize this is a ton 
of stuff we have learned this morning. We're surviving. Good. Okay. Coffee is coming. Coffee is coming. All right. It's coming. So around this time, it was decided what was in the Bible. Now, the word we use for this is the canon. Pretty much means ruler. So it's the canon is what's actually biblical, what's not. And um, in the first and second centuries after Jesus, many writings were circulating among Christians. <coughs> Some early churches were using books and letters in their services that were definitely a bit dodge, okay? Definitely a bit dodge. Now, there were kind of heretical movements, movements who were teaching all kind of weird and wonderful kind of stuff at that, at that moment. They were kind of rising up and teaching crazy stuff and choosing their own writings and saying, right, this is what's authoritative. And uh, people soon realized, Christians soon realized, the need to have a definitive list of God-inspired books. Um, and gradually it became clear which works were truly genuine, inspired by God, and which were just, you know, dodgy, weird stuff, okay? So basically there's three ways that they decided what would be in the Bible generally, these early Christians. Firstly was the self-evidencing quality of the books. So the fact that just some of the books that they had, they're just different. You know, like you just, you read the book of Romans or Acts, there's just an authority in it that's just different to other stuff. So Christians just could really see that. Also, the second thing that was kind of a factor was the fact that Christian, these books were used in Christian worship. So you, you preach from them and you just be like, like, there's something of God in this. This is God inspired and he's working through this. And the third kind of way they used to figure out, okay, what's biblical is it's ties to an apostle. So is this book written by an apostle or someone with direct contact to an apostle? Now, from very early on, it was pretty clear what was in the Bible and what wasn't. Now, it took a little bit of time for people to kind of, you know, sign, seal and deliver it and, you know, put the stamp of approval on it. But it was pretty clear, pretty obvious, pretty early on what was in the Bible. <coughs> Certainly by 190 AD, we know that they pretty much knew what was in the Bible and what wasn't. They had a general list of what was there. Um, we don't actually get the first complete list um, until 367 AD. Now, the Bible would have been put together long before that, but this is just the actual complete list that we have existing to us historically. So I suppose what's worth saying about the Bible being put together is what was included in the New Testament. I mean, they already had the Old Testament. What was included in the New Testament, it wasn't decided in a thunderbolt. You know, it wasn't just like, boom, right, there you go, New Testament. It, it, was, it, it came about after years of thoughtful, kind of prayerful reflection uh, from the Christian leaders uh, at the time. Um, but it was pretty standard. There wasn't much disagreement over it. People were like, yeah, this is, this is what's in, this is what's out. Now, despite all this good stuff, you know, what was in the Bible being decided and the incredible growth of Christianity, signs were beginning to show that Things weren't all hunky-dory in the church, though. Uh, Paul, uh, Paul had gone around in the early days, and if you read the Bible, he went around, and what he did in churches was he appointed elders and deacons. So what he set up, he set up team leadership in church, team leadership. But by 100 AD, churches had become led not by a team of elders, but by one guy, one person. And soon this person became known as a bishop. And before long, this bishop assumed leadership, not just of individual churches, but of all the churches in a city, in a, in a city and appointed under bishops or priests to lead individual congregations. Now, over time, this individual leadership <coughs> came to be abused in the church. Not now, but over time it would be. 
Now, also by about 200, 200, most Christians had come to believe that baptism cancelled out all the sins you'd committed up to that point. But sins committed after your baptism, they were a different matter. You needed to do stuff for them to be forgiven, which completely goes against the grace of God. But that's what people started to believe. People also came to believe at this time that (coughs) three sins in particular, sexual immorality, murder, and denial of the faith, were so serious that if you did them, you should be immediately kicked out of the church. That belief arose. And everyone believed that back then, if you were in the church, you were going to hell. Like there was no salvation outside the church. And there only was one church. It wasn't like you could kind of go down the, down the road to the next church. That, there wasn't. It was one church. So getting kicked out of the church was a pretty terrifying thing for people back then. Now, then in 250, the Roman emperor, Decius, begins a violent persecution against Christians, right? For two years, he violently persecutes them. Many Christians were imprisoned, tortured, and executed. And many Christians committed the third of those serious sins and denied the faith under severe torture. Now, what this meant was the question, this big question arose in the church, what do you do with these people who've denied the Lord, okay? Like, there's loads of them. You know, do we allow them back into the church or not? What do we do with them? So what they did was they set up a system to deal with the different levels of guilt. You know, so if you, if you said, I deny the Lord after you'd been tortured for 20 days. Well, well you, you know, you did all right. You know, if you, if you just, you know, even before they tortured you, you were like, oh, I'm fine, I, I deny the Lord. You know, they, they made up this system for different levels of guilt. Okay, no, you're not, you've done all right. You're really guilty. You've, you've got problems. Okay, and uh, what they did was they called this system penance. Penance. And basically... What that is, 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 is this system, depending on what you had done, you would be told to do stuff to show how sorry you were and make up for what you had done wrong. You know, so you could say to the, 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 the person who didn't even, didn't, wasn't even tortured, well, you're going to have to do a lot of stuff to make up for that. Mm-hmm. And the person who, was, who, who gave in after 20 days, oh, you're all right, you can just do a little small thing. So things like, you know, getting yourself in sackcloth and ashes and walking on your knees and doing certain things and begging people. All this kind of stuff came in then to show that you were sorry, to make up for what you'd done so that you could get back into the church. And only after you'd done all these things would be allowed back into the church. Now, this system of penance, I mean, it really went against the grace of God, actually, when you think of it. But also it gave church leaders incredible power over people. Because people were terrified of going to hell. You can imagine it. Like, you know, you do something wrong. And I say, well, I'm going to say you've got to do these six things. If you don't do these six things, I'm going to kick you out of the church and you're going to go to hell. Like, that's huge power. And really open to abuse. And it was abused, abused over time by the church to get more political power and prestige and money. Okay, so this period is a really awesome period. Loads of good stuff happened, but we start to see these glimmers of things kind of like, oh, that doesn't sound so good. or mm, I'm not sure what's going on there. So that was the period 70 AD to 312 AD, where the gospel exploded in growth despite persecution. Now, the period we're going to look at next <coughs> is from 312 to 590. Now, 
you might be thinking 312 is a bit of an odd date to start the next section. Well, the reason I've chosen this date to start the next section is because 312 was the year one of the most significant events in all church history happened. And that's because it's the year a guy called Constantine became the Roman emperor. Everyone's looking at their little timeline going, right, let's move that one. Okay, Constantine became Roman emperor in 312. One of the most significant events in church history. Now, basically what happened was the year before, now we're now, if you're in your notes, we're now in this little section 312 to 590 where it says everything changes after Constantine. That's where we are. Now, the year before, Uh, Constantine became emperor in 311. The previous Roman emperor, Galerius, had died. Now, his death ended eight years of the most severe state-sponsored persecution Christians had ever faced. Okay, many Christians were tortured and killed. Um, uh, So it was awful, really was awful. But when Galerius died, he ended it. 311, it's ended. Now, at this time, there was a power struggle over who would be the next emperor. (coughs) And in 312, one of the contenders for the throne, a young guy called Constantine, marched his army over the Alps and faced his rival just outside Rome. Now, before the battle, Constantine had a dream. And in it, he saw a cross. He saw a cross. And the words next to the cross said, in this sign, conquer. In this sign, conquer. So he fights the battle, he wins the battle, he becomes emperor, and he converts to Christianity. Now, some people doubt how genuine his conversion was, like, because even after he was a Christian, he still did what a lot of emperors did back then, you know, conspired and had people killed and all that kind of stuff. But there was definitely a change in his life, definitely a big change in his life. He allowed Christian ministers to be exempt from taxes. He abolished crucifixion, okay, no more would people be crucified. Um, He banned gladiatorial events. They're inhumane. He made Sunday a public holiday. He gave generously to new churches being built. So it came to the point now, if you're a pastor, you want a new church, just go to Constantine and say, look, can I have some money? And he says, yeah, how much? So he did that. And he had his family brought up as Christians and he was baptized shortly before his death in 337. So there was a massive change in Constantine's life. Okay, I, I believe he did become a Christian. Okay, I really do. Now, One of the significant things Constantine did was he made a new capital for the empire in what we know today as as modern-day Turkey. He called this new capital Constantinople. Constantinople. Now, you know, if you're thinking, I'm going to make a new city, what are you going to name it after? You know, me. I'm going to name it after myself. So, yeah, original, not a very original name. Um, (coughs) But he named his new capital Constantinople, and it remained called Constantinople for 1,600 years until 1930, when the Turks changed its name to Istanbul. Istanbul. Yeah, so when we talk about Constantinople, Constantinople is Istanbul, just so you know. That's the same place. So from this point on, there would be tension between the old capital, Rome, and the new capital of the empire, Constantinople. There was going to be this rivalry between the two. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more later. Now, it is hard to stress. Um, I mean, I was talking to someone uh, a couple of days ago, and they're like, Constantine, what's he got to do with church history? And I was like, what? Um, but it's hard to stress how hugely significant Constantine becoming emperor was for Christianity. Okay, the first thing happened was state persecution of Christians ended. It just ended, period. That was, it was over. Forget that. That's done. Um, before Constantine, Christianity had been outlawed and persecuted. Now, it was favored and pampered. 
Now, it sounds really good. It sounds like if you're a Christian man, Constantine's become emperor, you'd be like, yes, Jesus, praise the Lord. This is awesome, right? We're not going to get killed anymore. But it wasn't all that simple like when you think about it. So if you think before Constantine, if you wanted to become a Christian, um, you had to be willing to die for your faith, okay? So there were no half-hearted Christians before Constantine. Okay, if you were becoming a Christian, you were all in for Jesus. Okay, your life was on the line. So you can imagine churches were solid. People were full on for Jesus, living for Jesus, really on it, right? After Constantine, the church became infiltrated by politically ambitious people who weren't really interested in Jesus. They were just interested in getting a good job. They're like, well, Constantine's now a Christian. He likes Christians. He promotes people in his government who are Christians. So I'm going to go to church, say I go to church, so I can get a good job in the government. Weren't interested in Jesus. Weren't interested in following the Lord. Just wanted to get on in life. It was a way to get on in life. So the church became diluted um, and used for political purposes. And we are going to have coffee now. Well, chat more about Constantine afterwards. I realize that is so much content and information. We need a break. So let's have some coffee and relax. And a, a bit of advice, don't talk about church history in your coffee break because <laughs> you're going to have a lot more time to think about it and talk about it today. Okay, talk about something else. Okay, everyone, I know I said that I would give you the answers to our little kind of game activity right at the end. But what I thought I'm going to do is, why don't we split it up so we have double the fun. Um, and I'm going to give you the answers to the first four events in our little game. And then you're going to have, just, you're going to have something to look forward to. You know, find out when the, next, the last five actually happened. Okay, so does anyone want to shout out when you reckon the first event in our nine little cards was? Yes, Apostle Paul start, begins his missionary journeys in the 40s. Yeah. Anyone want to have a guess at what the second event was? Destruction of Jerusalem. Yeah. Destruction of Jerusalem, which was in 70 AD. Yeah. Um, our third event, and the third and fourth ones are kind of, yeah. Third event, what do we think? The canon, yeah. So the canon was, the canon was closed. I mean, if you put the canon forth, I'm going to let you away with that because we don't have like a record of the complete list to a little bit after Constantine, but it was, it was pretty much there before Constantine. So the third one is the canon is closed. And the fourth one, I've given you a bit of a clue talking about Constantine, is Constantine. Constantine. Yes, so Constantine became emperor in 312. <coughs> We're going to leave the other five and we'll come back to them a little bit later. Um, and I'm just going to get back into chatting about Mr. C, Mr. Constantine. Okay, so pretty much uh, we left it off that the church before Constantine was really fu full on committed Christians. If you wanted to become a Christian, you were willing to die for your faith. After Constantine, one of the consequences was the church was kind of diluted by people who weren't in it for the right reasons. Now, it wasn't long before Constantine in his reign made Christianity the state religion of the empire. The state religion of the empire. Now, what's interesting is one or two empires, em emperors after Constantine in 380, 
one of the emperors after Constantine, 380, um, actually went further and made belief in Christianity compulsory in the empire. Okay, so think about that, right? In 311, right, Christians were getting killed by the state, by the Roman emperor. Okay, loads of them. You were getting killed for being a Christian by the authorities. Only 70 years later, you could get killed by the authorities for not being one. Okay? In 70 years, that is the change that has come about. That is how huge the change we have here. Okay? Now, what Roman emperors started to do was they started to use Christianity to control the empire. Now, one of the results of Christianity becoming the state religion was that lots of arguments started to begin over theology. Okay, now, when your life's at risk for being a Christian, normally you spend most of your time just trying to survive. But now, these guys had a bit more time on their hands, so theological arguments arise. Now, one of the biggest disputes that came at around this time was in 318, so only, what, six years after Constantine became emperor, a guy called Arius came along and said, Christ isn't fully God. Christ isn't fully God. He's a lesser being than the Father. Constantine needed Christianity united because he was using it to unite his empire. So he called a church council, a big gathering of all the church leaders in 325 in a place near Constantinople called Nicaea, called Nicaea. 300 bishops uh, went to the conference. Now, what's, what's interesting is many of these bishops had, had suffered terribly under the persecution just 14 years previous under Galerius. <coughs> Some of the bishops were crippled from the torture. One couldn't use his hands. He'd been tortured so badly. Another one had only one eye. But here they were as the honored guests of the emperor sitting at his table as he asked them for advice. It must have been a surreal experience. You know, they're all expenses paid, traveled under the protection of the emperor. You know, they may even have been guarded by some of the guards who'd actually persecuted them many years previous. Who knows? But it, it, was, it was just crazy, this complete difference. It must have been completely surreal for these guys. At the council um, in Nicaea, they decided that Arius was wrong. Jesus was God, not less than him. And a crucial part of the Trinity was established there. And what they did was they, at the council, they agreed to come up with a creed, which is basically a statement of belief, like a, this is what we believe as Christians, which summed up what they believed. And they came up with the Nicene Creed, which you have in your notes there. I'm not going to read it all, but the second line, <coughs> the second line in it says, we believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God of God, light of light, true God from true God, begotten, not made of one being with the Father. That line was kind of put in to just counter this heresy from, from Arius. But that's the, that's the kind of this, this statement of belief that all the the church leaders came up with and said, look, this is what we believe. This is where we're at. Still used today. It's a good creed. It's great. Yeah. Now, Constantine, at the end of the conference, he holds this banquet to celebrate. Because it's been a pretty successful conference, okay? Holds this conference to celebrate. And at it, he, he, he does this symbolic act. He, he goes to the bishop who'd lost his eye in the persecution 14 years previously. And he walks up and he kisses him on the cheek as a sign of the new friendship between the empire and the church. It was this real symbolic thing. And as a result of this union between church and state, theology now came under state control. 
So when there were theological disputes, the emperor would call a church council and have the leaders sort it out. So he'd basically get all the church leaders in a room and say, look, lads, sort this out or I'm going to sort you out. Okay, and that's a big incentive, you know, when you're a church leader. Um, Now, there were many more church councils over the years to come, which condemned heresy and further clarified Christian beliefs and doctrines. Now, after Constantine's reign finished in 337, um, moral decay set into the church. You know, at one time people laid down their lives for the faith. Now people in church just fought each other for positions of influence. There was lots of factionalism and infighting grew. Okay, some of you thinking, oh, you're talking about my church. Um, Yeah, but it started to happen. And around this time, monasticism began to appear. (coughs) People who no longer liked what they saw in the state church retreated into the desert for prayer and for silence and for solitude. And the first monk was a guy called Antony, later called Antony the Great. Um, and in 250 AD, he, he retreated into the Egyptian um, desert, um, gave all his wealth away, went into the desert and, and, and lived as the first monk, really. In 320, we see the first monastery. Um, and monasticism, it really, it started out as this <coughs> radical movement of people who just wanted to live for Jesus with everything they had. And over time, monks became really well respected as spiritual leaders compared to lots of the power-hungry people who seem to be now running the church. And over time, as people realized the state of the church, monks were increasingly appointed to leadership positions in the church because people recognized that these guys were the real deal. I mean, they didn't really care about money or power or any of that stuff. They just wanted to live for Jesus. Okay, so people started to recognize this and gradually these guys were brought in to run the church. One such guy who made a huge impact on the church was a guy called Augustine. Augustine, he was born in 354 in Algeria, in the mid-300s. Um, as a young guy, he did a lot of partying and a lot of sleeping around. But then when he got a bit older, he, he was in a garden one time, and he, he said, I heard the voice of a child say to me, take and read, take and read. So he picked up the New Testament and he read, it just, he just flipped it open to Romans chapter 13, verses 13 to 14, which says this, let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy, rather clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. And Augustine said, it was as if the light of peace was poured into my heart and all the shades of doubt faded away. He became the leader of his city in North Africa called Hippo. Um, I'm just going to say this. One of the things I love about Augustine is just before he died, like he was in his deathbed, he couldn't move. And he, he had the Psalms stuck to the walls and the ceiling of his room. So like, even though he couldn't move and get out of his bed, he could just read them like all day, every day until he died. I love that. Anyway, that's just a little aside from Augustine. But basically, Augustine is one, if not <coughs> the most significant Christian writers and theologians of all of church history. His writings have helped shape theology ever since, and they're still widely read today. And um, one of my favorite quotes uh, from Augustine, it's kind of been popularized in recent times. You may have heard of it. Is He says this, this quote is, um, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. That's one of the kind of most popular Augustine quotes. You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. A lot of what we believe and our practice and theology comes from Augustine, what he wrote and his theology. Now, one of the most famous monks at that time was a guy called Benedict. 
And in 529, he set up the Monte Cassino Monastery, which is the most famous of all monasteries in Europe. It's in Italy. And he began um, the Benedictine monks. Now, what made the Benedictine monks so popular at that time was that Benedict wrote this rule for monks. And um, up to that point, being a monk was really severe. Like, it was really severe. And what he did was he wrote this rule, or this set of instructions of how to be a monk that was kind of balanced. It kind of mixed like prayer and work and a bit of leisure time. So it was, it was balanced and really attracted people to become monks. And what he did was he set up this movement called Benedictine Monks and they spread right across Europe. And they were incredibly significant in the Middle Ages. And they gave opportunity for study, for protection, for rest. And they're actually a really good missionary force in terms of spreading the gospel. So they, they set up really monasticism as we know it today. So if you look at what monks do today, a lot of it comes from the Benedictines, from the 500s. Now, this period also saw the emergence of the Pope. This period also saw the emergence of the Pope. Now, the church in Rome, right from the early days, had always been a very important church, right from the early, early days. The reason being was because the church in Rome was the church in the capital city of the empire. It was it soon became the largest church in the whole empire. It soon became the wealthiest church in the whole empire. It had a reputation for good theology. It had a reputation for looking after the poor. Um, and it was very big. We know that by 250 AD, the church in Rome had around 30,000 people in it. That's how big the church of Rome was in 250 AD. And also, um, the, the church in Rome kind of became to be like very influential because basically the... The two big dudes of Christianity had both started it. Peter and Paul had both pretty much went to Rome and started the church in Rome, you know, and they died there. So because of all these reasons, the church of Rome became very influential. And the bishop of the church of Rome became very respected by other bishops. But up until Constantine, there's no evidence that the bishop of Rome had any official control of churches outside of Rome. He had influence and respect, but no official control. Now, what happened at that time was when Constantine made Constantinople his capital, the bishop, he put a church in there and he put a bishop in there, the bishop of Constantinople would say, to kind of get kind of kudos and stuff, he would say, well, Constantine appointed me. And that was where he kind of looked to his authority. Yeah, well, Constantine, Constantine's the guy we look to. And because of that, what the Roman church tended to do was they started to appeal to Peter and Paul and say, oh, well, oh, Constantine, he started your church. Oh, that's cool. Well, guess who started ours? Peter and Paul. Yeah, Trump, you. So there became this kind of rivalry between them kind of like, yeah, Constantine's our guy. Well, Peter and Paul. I mean, hey, how much how many is the Bible did Constantine write? Ah, uh, okay. You know, so there was this kind of rivalry came about of them kind of, the church in Rome appealing to, to Peter and Paul for their authority, in particular Peter and that whole kind of link. Now, in 440, Rome got a new bishop. His name was Leo. And in his first sermon, he proclaimed himself not just the head of the church in Rome, but the head of all Christendom. Now, this was the first time the bishop of Rome had claimed authority over all other churches. Five years later, the Roman emperor made it law that the bishop of Rome had authority over all Christendom. So we're talking 445 and before long, the Bishop of Rome began referring to himself by a new name. He began referring to himself as the Pope, which simply comes from the word meaning Papa. So from then on, he was called the Pope. 
Now, 12 years after Leo became the Bishop of Rome, Attila the Hun, you may have heard of him from history, arrives outside Rome with a huge army because he basically wants to destroy Rome. And who goes out to negotiate with Attila the Hun? Not the emperor, no. Leo, the Pope, goes out to negotiate with Attila the Hun. And he manages to convince Attila to not destroy Rome and to go back home. And everyone is like, oh my goodness, Pope Leo is awesome. He's just saved our city. This is fantastic. So they were like, wow, he's great. And they kind of hailed him, not the emperor, as the savior of Rome. Now, by this stage, the Roman Empire was getting weaker and weaker. Three years after this, another foreign invader came and did destroy Rome. Now, Leo didn't, Leo didn't manage to stop them this time, but, but he was the one that the people looked for and looked to help in this whole, whole, whole situation. And he helped the people, he comforted them, he represented them. So he was there for them. Um, and, and, and basically what began to happen is, because of this, the people in Rome began to see the Pope as, not just as their, their spiritual leader, but also as their political leader. Okay? They began to see him as their leader rather than the, the increasingly weak emperor. Now, as we approach the end of the early church era, <coughs> the Roman Empire is crumbling. And by 476, after a series of invasions by, by Germanic tribes, or they would be called barbarian tribes back then because they didn't speak Greek, um, they were invaded by them a few times. And finally, the Roman Empire collapses um, in, 400, or in 476. Now, with no Roman Empire to bring order anymore, a power vacuum emerges. And uh, the result is lots and lots and lots and lots of wars and battles and destruction and bloodshed. Pretty much everything just goes crazy and just destroys everything and kills everything in sight. Um, Europe pretty much descends into utter chaos in this period. And the church pretty much, the church becomes pretty much the only institution that is not destroyed at this time. So increasingly, people start to look to the church for hope and security as everything around them is disintegrating. And in 590, and this is the end of our first section, in 590, a guy called Gregory becomes pope. He's the first monk to be made pope. And Gregory, Gregory was a strong leader in uncertain times. And because of this, people started to look to him, not just for pol- spiritual leadership, but for political leadership too. Therefore, after Gregory, the Pope was no longer viewed only as a church leader, but now as an important political leader too. And that view increased as the years went on. Now, during this chaotic time, monasteries grew to be the centers of Christian life and learning and mission. Uh, And they actually, they kept copies of early Bible manuscripts. They taught theology. They evangelized. Basically, monasteries became the light in this dark period. And over the next few hundred years, monasteries sent out thousands of monks across Europe to evangelize the many warring tribes across Europe. And they led many, many people to Christ. And one of the most successful monastic missionary movements of this time was started by a guy called Patrick. You may know him as St. Patrick. In the mid-400s, he started evangelizing people in Ireland. They started loads of monasteries. Then they spread to Britain. Then they spread to, to mainland Europe. Ireland became the base for evangelism of Britain and the European continent at this time. They established monasteries in the UK, Germany, Switzerland, and northern Italy. Basically, Patrick and his Irish missionary movement played an incredibly important role in evangelizing post-Roman Empire Europe. Okay, so he's 
He's more than just someone you, you know, have a pint of Guinness to remember on St. Patrick's Day. He was actually a really successful strategic missionary, Patrick was. Okay, and it's interesting. My wife, my wife is from Munich. And one of the first things her dad said to me when I met him was he said, Irish monks brought the gospel to Munich. And I was like, what? Irish monks, he's, you're Irish, Irish monks brought the gospel to Munich. I was like, that's a long way. And, and I haven't fact-checked this, but that, that's basically what he's talking about. That region, mo- monasteries were planted in that region from the Irish. Um, so they were a real powerful missionary force at that time. So, so that concludes the early church period from 29 to 590. I promise that is the longest of the four sections. Does anyone have any questions on that at all? Tumbleweed. It's fine. Well, we'll, we'll, have, we'll have more opportunities for questions. I just wanna, I want us to have a little bit of a discussion time now. In your t- on your tables, in your groups. I want you to just talk to the person next to you. Which part of the church history we've just covered would you most like to have lived in? And which part would you have least liked to have lived in? There you go. Discuss. Take a few minutes. Okay, everyone. Does anyone want to share um, which part of church history you've just covered you most like to live in? Just shout, shout, shout something out. I'd be a desert monk. You'd be a desert monk. Yeah, I can see you as a desert monk. Yeah. Yeah. Anyone else? Oh, okay. If we could guarantee your safety. So if you're like a time traveler and you could just click your fingers and just zap out. Yeah? Okay. You'd like to see the intensity of the persecution, yeah? Oh, no. The intensity. Sorry? Of the joy. Oh, yeah. Okay, cool. Great. Anyone else? Where would you, where would you like to go? The point where Constantine says it's all right. The point where Constantine says it's all right. Yeah. Persecution's over. Great. Yeah? Um, what about um, somewhere you would really not like to go in church history that we've just covered? 64 AD, yeah? Yeah, we're probably all agreed on that. Anyone else? The sack of Rome. The sack of Rome, yeah. 